Chats from the Blog Cabin. Your favorite podcast is here. guys, welcome back to another episode of Chats from the Blog Cabin. You know, the show where I invite people virtually into the blog cabin to chat about life. And you know who I am. I'm Melissa. But today we're chatting with Wiem. She's the author of Pomegranate, which is a book that helps bridge cultural stereotypes about um, Arab Americans. So I love that. And so before we get into talking about your book, tell us a little about yourself. Um, so I was born uh, in Baghdad and um, to an indigenous um, ethnicity called the Chaldeans, who are uh, just an ancient group that um, are also Christians. So we are a minority in Iraq. And we came to the United States in 1981. And um, I decided I wanted to be a writer even before I graduated from, um, from college, but I just was thinking that it's gonna be a side thing. <laughs> I didn't know I was like, I'm gonna go to law school and, and be a lawyer full time and, and write on the side, but then that became my whole career is writing and storytelling. And let's talk about your book, Pomegranate, because that, it, to me, it's being made into a movie, which is amazing as it is, but I love the fact that you're trying to help dismiss some of the stereotypes about Arab Americans. Yeah, and um, this particular book, although actually a lot of my stories, um, this is my 14th book, and uh, most of my stories have one of the things that they focus on are, um, I mean, they're really more mostly true life stories. And the reason I focus on that is because I saw how much, how many stereotypes there are. And uh, over the years, I found like there's a focus on um, certain types of women in the Middle East that are normally just like the ones that are abused and oppressed all the time, which there is, uh, of course, that that does exist in the Middle East and in the Arab world and, and it does elsewhere as well. But but there's also another side. And I always I just kept feeling like that other side is not being told. So I wasn't finding myself in any story and I wasn't finding my people in any story. So I tried to stay um, even in my fiction. A lot of it is very like just about people in, in my um, in my life, and some of it is about myself as well. Um, and pomegranate, and then especially with regards to women, I like to focus on that because we have very powerful women in our communities. Um, and pomegranate, the main character is a a, a young um, Muslim liberal who is a refugee in the United States, so and she lives across the street from a conservative Christian. <laughs> Ooh. who happens to be, who's a Chaldean, who happens to be from my community. And and I started this project because um, after the 2016 elections, there was, as you know, there was so much tension going on in every community, including in our community, um, and especially between the Chaldeans, which are Christian Iraqis, and the Muslims. Now, um, the Chaldean community in Michigan uh, we have the largest community in the world of Chaldeans, especially after what happened in ISIS in 2014. So in Michigan, we were the second largest population, but then now we're the largest population. There's also the largest concentration of Arab Americans. So really the setting is just perfect. Like this is our new home. 
tech, you know, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the tension that was happening between the, the different religions and the different beliefs kind of was escalating. And I wanted to go um, on social media and just like, you know, just throw all my comments as well. But I found that I, I, I when I would put comments up there and then it would be, everything became such a, not a debate, a debate is a good thing, but it was like, everybody was attacking each other. Uh-huh. So I said, I don't know that I want the stage. And um, so I decided to take my energies and create these two characters that have different belief systems that live across the street from each other. And I kind of put my energies into the story. I love that. So how did you become a movie? How has it be? How did you get to where it's becoming a movie now? Well, I am an independent filmmaker. So I've, um, I did a documentary, a feature documentary that won two international awards and it has a representation right now from, um, uh, Porter Pictures in, in Beverly Hills. And similarly to this project, that project was also, but that one is nonfiction. And um, that project, it was also a book. The book won an Eric Hoffer Award and the feature documentary won a couple of awards. And I had gone to film school. So uh, my, my projects oftentimes take a little bit longer um, than usual because, you know, I have my kids, my family. And, um, but I, I just love writing books. The secondary, the filmmaking part became where as a storyteller, I was really, I cared how, um, you know, I, I, I moved with the times and people nowadays, you get a larger audience to view your story through film and other ways. So that's what attracted me to that. And I, I managed um, a family owned video store business when video stores were on, remember like a hundred years ago, <laughs> like the <Yeah>. dinosaur age. <laughs> so I managed that store for 12 years. And um, and again, it wasn't about like, I, I wasn't intimidated about the, the, the filmmaking process. I was more concerned like about telling my story and through different mediums. Um, and it, the script that I wrote, it was selected quarter final, Pomegranate was selected quarter finalist by Francis Coppola's Zeotrope. Um, and then some colleagues of mine wanted to take a look at it. They were interested to work with me on it. And we, we really have a powerful team now, including um, Scott Rosenfeld, the producer of Home Alone and Mystic Pizza. He's our executive mm-hmm. producer. Um, and, I, and I think it's just because, honestly, the political aspect is just the fun, spicy, mm-hmm. controversial part. But really, what's drawing people in is the comedy. There's a lot of humor, and there's a lot of like heartfelt things in the story. So, what made you decide to pick up a pen and start writing? Period. Because you said you were thinking about you were going to go be a lawyer and do writing <laughs> on the side, and you totally didn't do that. Yeah, I was going to be a lawyer because I was like smart in school and in my culture, and and, and a lot of you know, cultures, it's like, you know, your family prefers that you be a doctor or a lawyer. That's the thing. You don't become a full-time writer, right? (laughs) Um, But I realized like pursuing a a law degree, this was after I got my bachelor's degree. I realized that pursuing a law degree, I would do good and with my grades, but I would really not make a good lawyer, (laughs) Um, especially because I don't have a good I'm not very comfortable for fighting for what's like, if I, if I know somebody's guilty, I get different. <laughs> like, I'll be like, no, you know, like <laughs> they deserve to be punished. Um, so I took the other route and, you know, it, not knowing that it was the more challenging one, <laughs> but, 
it was very exciting in the beginning and then you go through this big hurdle where you realize it's not that easy to break in especially because in my case um my stories were very were very authentic in that they had the Iraqi American storytelling and I, I had agents from New York, uh, really great, two great agents over the years that who really believed in my work. But then it seemed like my diverse voice wasn't fitting into the diversity that the publishing industry was looking for. Because again, my women, the women in my um, stories are not victims, they just have a story to tell. And um, so I really wasn't fitting in. And plus I was Christian, I was a Christian woman from the Middle East and I wasn't writing about honor killing and it just like, well, where are we gonna fit her? Are, are her books gonna sell type of thing? Um, and that I think that was the first time where I realized that uh, people who oftentimes say that they are interested in, in learning about diversity, but it's very hard for them to accept it as it really is rather than as how they see it. No, that's true. And I don't know if you saw the opening credits. I have a very diverse family. My husband's from Mexico. My son-in-law was born in Japan, born and raised in Japan. And so, so we're like, <laughs> total like, but. So, you know, yeah, like, you know, that sometimes how people view it from a distance or want to view it is not necessarily how it is in real life. You know, <laughs> that is so true. So that's one of the reasons why I definitely wanted you to come on, because I think there's so many stereotypes about Arabs, Americans right now. I think a lot of people are thinking that they're, you know, I hate to put the T word out, but a lot of people think that that's what the, all they do and that they're all really um, people that are really bad people. And they're not. They're just they put our pants, their pants on just same as I we do. You know, so let's talk about some of the stereotypes. Um. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Jack Shaheen wrote a book about how uh, the Arab is viewed in the media and in films. And really there was like no, nobody had a role that was like in a positive sense. And um, the, the whole way, I, I often tell the story of why I started writing more so like true life stories. Um, I was at Heathrow Airport. My friend and I, we were, we had taken a tour of, um, like we were went to Morocco and Portugal and on, on the way back, the plane stopped at Heathrow Airport and I went into a bookstore and I saw this rack of books that were written by Western authors and every single one of them had this veiled woman that was running away from either an abusive husband, an abusive brother or, um, or a father. And you know, I was disturbed that that was the only image that was mm -hmm. out there. So again, not that there this does not exist, but that's mm -hmm. not the only thing that exists over there. There are different, you know, there's a variety of different women that live a different lifestyle and they have their challenges and it's not necessarily what everybody else views as that. So when I came home, I decided, um, you know, I'm going to search and see like what stories are out there because at that time I was already writing, but I wasn't focused on writing like just true life stories or trying to get them as close to the truth as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I honestly, like, I didn't find anything out there that was especially that was not written maybe in Arabic. Um, and so at that point, I decided to like focus on that kind of stuff. And over the years, because as a journalist, I started writing more nonfiction and then I started writing memoir. Um, and this is my first novel in over 10 years. I, I originally started with novel, um, but then, you know, over the years I wrote nonfiction and stuff like that. Um, and the stereotypes were really that 
again, like one of my editors once said, oh, you know, why don't you write about honor killing? Like that would really sell, that would become a bestseller. And I'm like, I don't know anything about honor killing. And in Iraq, actually, that wasn't something that was um, one of our issues as women back then. And what I noticed is whatever image in the Middle East area, in the Arab world is, is very big. It's kind of like, you know, um, just because the United, in the United States and England and Scotland, everybody speaks English, but it doesn't mean, you know, each one is a different country and each one has its, uh, its various cultures. And so I, I found that we were all kind of grouped into one thing mm -hmm. where the women are, you know, oppressed and abused and the men, um, you know, are very, and it is a patriarch system over there that like, there's no denying that that is a, a true thing. And that's something that really they, they need to work on. So again, it's not like they don't have their own problems, but, but that the focus, the negativity of it is it, it's to the point where, you know, it dehumanizes who they are. Mm -hmm. And so you often find them in war movies. They are like the bad guys Mm. they're so victimized to the point where you feel well if we're gonna go and bomb this country that's not so bad because they're living in the worst condition possible <laughs> yeah um, yeah it kind of gives you like kind of um a permission that well you know they're they're living in such a in, in the worst circumstances and really it's it's really not like that uh one of the recent films that came out called Mosul which came on Netflix and it was like they did a, a lot of advertisement on it and um, it wasn't even filmed in Iraq, but again, it shows Iraq at its worst, which doesn't even exist the way they're portraying it, even mm -hmm. now in Iraq. So if you're gonna continuously show these images and make it seem like we're they're living in hell, it's just, I think it makes it easier for people um, that are non-Middle Easterner to think that, it just dehumanizes the people, I think. And it takes away the appreciation for the mm -hmm. for the culture, the history, and the richness. Because in Iraq, in particular, before the name Mesopotamia was changed to Iraq, was Mesopotamia. It's in the Bible. It's the cradle mm -hmm. of civilization. It's where writing was um, was started, and a lot of other inventions that were created there. The city states. So once you change that name so the memory was lost and the connection of mm -hmm. right, that area you know the the biblical uh prophet abraham is from or land of the chaldees and the chaldeans trace their roots to that to that um heritage mm -hmm. and so the, those beautiful sides we don't have a chance to even speak about them because there's so much focus on islam terrorism mm -hmm. um, corruption and all the all the negative things so why, why do you think there's so much focus on the negative things? So maybe because the government wants to rule or I don't know, because there's always that focus. And I'm like, it's not everybody, you know, of course, every society has bad people in it. Every society across the board. Nobody can say everybody's good. But why are they singled out as being the ones that are terrorists and they're ones that are they're the worst dregs of study just like mexicans they're like oh they're they don't do anything they're not worth anything all they do you know the stereotype of tequila and a siesta you know that type of stereotype which is totally not true but why is that like in when you see them portrayed in movies they're not even portrayed right yeah and and i do think there's a lot of um you know the, the united states has been involved with iraq for over 100 years which most people are not even aware. So through my writing and my research and just my work in the community, I've learned so much about the history and our involvement with, with Iraq. 
Um, and it all started with oil. And the British uh, were involved first, so during World War One, and um, and and the United States kind of came later on. And so what happened? Whatever country was trying to kind of benefit from the resources that Iraq had, were going in to like better the country for to save the country somehow. But it was really at the end of the day, it was about other factors, um, and and because that continues or uh, I just think that it's important to keep that image because it doesn't help that region grow. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe that I believe in storytelling and that if you repeat the same narrative, you will live that same, you'll repeat that same cycle over and over again. And um, I think the Middle East will continue to experience that cycle because of the image that the Western uh, Westerners are placing on it and as well as because of the Middle East not kind of looking within and trying to stop that pattern from repeating mm -hmm. itself. So it's not like, I don't believe that any um, situation is the way it is from one side. It's kind of like a marriage. You know, mm -hmm. you can't blame everything on your husband and the husband can't blame everything on the wife. There's mutually, you know, good and bad in the situation where you're trying to work it out. And I think that the, the both areas, uh, like the Western world knows the weaknesses that reside in the Arab world and the Arab world kind of doesn't look within and investigate itself, which actually happens in, in the United States as well. There are some things that we have to own up to so we can become a better country. Um, so these are what the faults are. And um, again, it's very unfortunate, but I, I also believe that that's why the name was changed. I believe that the name was changed in 1921 in order to disconnect that memory and the value of that region by calling it a different country to where I remember, um, like now it's, it's a little bit different. I noticed, especially after the 2003 war, that more people are aware of, of the history of Iraq because of our um, relationship there. But prior to that, people had no idea that Mesopotamia and Iraq had any kind of an association together. I mean, they, they were clueless and we go to the church and, you know, in, in our churches, I mean, it's the pastor, the priest, everybody brings it up. But it, but uh, saying the word Mesopotamia and saying the word Iraq, even if you tell them it's the same region, it's very hard to fathom because of that disconnect in the name. And, and I think that was done purposely. Why do you think it was done purposely? Well, because Mesopotamia is, you know, uh, it's has a totally different definition. It's a biblical area. It's, you know, the uh, home of uh, Prophet Abraham. It's got a very, it's a, it has historical significance, the cradle of civilization. The first writer in recorded history was a woman from ancient Iraq. Not male or female, the first writer. She was a priestess, a princess, and a poet. And her father, he was a king, King Sargon, he put her in a position where she used her poetry to try to bring peace between the nations that, that they had like conquered. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that that she is the first writer, it's not because there was nobody had written before her, but traditionally prior to her, whoever wrote didn't sign, didn't put their name down. So you didn't know who, who wrote the material. But in her case, she did write her name. At the end of her poetry, she said, it is I and Hadwana who wrote this. So she knew she was making history and she wanted to do that. And 
A lot of this was discovered, she lived over 2000 years ago, but a lot, much of this was discovered when the British were in Iraq. And I think her disc was discovered in 1927 with all this information and her poetry and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, like it, that's all this historical significance. Now, when I share this with people, I have yet to find somebody that knows about her from when I mention her, mm -hmm. even including our own people, because our people were so busy on a survival scale through all the genocide and everything that happens in Iraq, like war after war and um, the negative things that have happened, the corruption and stuff, that they had not focused on that area, the arts and culture. You know, they were just focusing on survival and for the most part, like in our case, getting out of there, especially if this was during the Ba'ath party. Um, and so now I am executive director of the Chaldean Cultural Center, which houses the world's first and only Chaldean museum. And so when I give a tour, and she's not in the museum, because <laughs> I wasn't, I came on after the museum was built, but I always mention her. And I have yet to find somebody that when I mention her, they say, oh yeah, I know who Enhedwana is. Wow, so you're kind of helping to change the narrative around what's happened and change the narrative around the stereotypes. And you do that through your writing and also through your work there. But let's talk about some of the stereotypes. What are the most stereo, one of the, what's, well, hold on, let me think again. What are the most ones you hear all the time? Um, right, like, now it's not like it was before and um you know things have changed but i know one thing that used to surprise me when people would say like things um you know like they, they would tell us to go back to our country you know you know why don't you take go back and like we're, we're taking people's businesses and things like that but that really wasn't true um we like many of the other people came here legally we uh, my brother petitioned us um, and we're, we're very grateful for how, you know, the teachers that tried to, like, I remember, you know, the, the teachers that tried to teach me English and tried to help me acclimate and assimilate. Um, but then the people that would view us with regards to how we handled business, well, one of the things that I think people can learn from immigrants is that um, when we suffer the way we do and when we're oppressed from a certain land, when we come to the United States, we understand the value of what it has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so we work so, so hard in a way that most people don't want to work. And they don't really, I don't know if they believe that, you know, working seven days a week is just a norm for us and going to school and doing this and that. Because you, when you find a safe haven and you have that kind of freedom, and you, you recognize it, you're so grateful. You know, the country becomes like your parent, just kind of like carrying you through the process. And so when you experience the negativities and the stereotypes, you really tune it out because mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you, in a lot of cases, given that what we've seen, it's, it's not, um, <laughs> I don't wanna say it's not as bad or anything, but really it's not. Uh, I think when you go through the kind of, um, discrimination and some of the things that we want as non-Baathists and as minority Christians. So we feel like here, even if we hear things, it's not on a, you know, mm -hmm. on such a bad scale. But 
when we are told that what I feel bad about is somebody saying, feeling that we're taking their business is that whatever it was on this land was here long before we came here. And if anybody wanted it, it was it's available for everybody. So just because we saw something that they didn't see, it wasn't because we took anything away from anybody. It's because we were able to see some things that they can't see. And again, it's because we came from an area where we really sacrificed everything. We weren't able to take anything with us to come here. So my dad had a great job, all the money, the house, whatever we had, you have to leave it alone because you can't you can't have raise suspicion that you're gonna mm. we're coming here. So it's like, oh, okay, we're gonna go visit Jordan. And from there, we waited our, for our visa. And so you, if you take anything with you, you're gonna raise suspicions with the government. Um, and so you come really empty handed and yet you build up just because you work so hard. Um, and people that were here long before us, they didn't see these opportunities and maybe because you know they spent more of the time complaining about what they don't have and watching other people you know, seeing the riches of what this country has to offer. So let's talk about, because obviously the way you're talking is you basically had to flee. You basically had to leave. So let's talk about that experience. Yeah, like, um, so I don't have a recollection. I know that when, when we used to bring up the word America and Iraq, we were like, hush, hush, like, don't say the word America. Um, and we would be like, and our, our homes were like made out of bricks. So the walls are very, very thick. And as a child, I would wonder like, well, who'd hear us? Like it's in the middle of the night and the, the walls are so thick. Who is my family afraid of? Um, and they were afraid of the government and, and the government, um, they did place like uh, people that would just like, you know, that maybe your neighbors or something that would eavesdrop on you. I don't know, like that's, there was things going on at that time where people were very afraid, especially because Saddam was coming into power, which he was coming into power long before even he became president. Um, and and then we had my brother, he was in, the, in America and every time we would get a letter from him, it was always like, hush, hush, like don't get too excited, don't get too happy. We don't want our neighbors to you know notice. Mm -hmm. um, and then the day that we left, it was years later that I once asked my mom, I said, mom, how did we leave? I don't have recollection of the day that we left. And it was like, I was in Iraq one day and then all of a sudden I was in Jordan and I don't remember the transition. And she said, oh, we, you know, we rode a plane. And I said, a plane? I thought the first plane I rode was the one that I came here. And she's like, no, we, we got on a plane. And I realized that this part was totally blocked out because I think it was so painful that like, um, as children, my myself and my younger brother, we were not told anything for fear that we would slip and say, say something. And so um, I think I blocked it out. It seems like because it's like I I just we left. We never I never saw my house again. I didn't see my friends, my school. That world was just disconnected and nobody shared mm. anything to me. I knew that we were going to America, but I only knew that once we got to Jordan. But nobody discussed anything with me. Nobody said, we're not going to go back. You're not going to see anybody. And not until that we arrived to um, the U.S. Uh, about nine months later, that it just dawned on me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, that's it. It's That world is gone. And here I am. I'm a, I just had turned 10 years old. And it's like, I, for myself, I just realized, like, 
that part of my life is gone and that's it. And nobody, again, discussed it with me because they were always on this um, in this phase of trying to make ends meet and trying to survive and trying to do this and trying to do that. And as children, we just kind of were trying to figure things out. Um, so yeah, that left like a trauma for, for myself, like leaving the country in that manner. Wow, I can't even imagine. And I wanna talk about that a little bit more, but right now we need to take a brief commercial break and then we will get right back to you. Okay. Chats from the blog cabin. Hit subscribe and don't miss the next episode. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to see know and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can't be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life Choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts, and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to NakedSelfWorth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past. Reclaim your sexy and start re-choreographing life on your own terms so you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are. And we are back with We Am. Um, let's talk about the trauma that you experienced when you left because obviously as a child, you just said you didn't know anything about leaving Iraq and coming to America, but how did you get through all that turmoil and that trauma? Because leaving all your friends and a life that you've known to come to a country that you didn't really know anything about. Yeah. Well, I, we just, you know, we continue just going to school and working and I didn't realize that I had experienced trauma until I was much older and realized, um, I actually got in, involved with um, Mystic, uh, 
Lindy Andrews. She's a best-selling author of the Medicine Woman series. And I got involved with her work over 10 years ago um, and in her school. And this is where I started like connecting the dots and saw how my experience, not only of leaving the country in that manner, but even prior to that, there was a couple of incidents that happened where um, the principal like slapped me and it was the first time anybody had like laid hands on me. And, and that's when the, um, um, again, like when Saddam was coming into power, the, the, everything was shifting. So his method was kind of using fear and they were, they started using that in the school. Like if you're, you know, like I missed his parade and then you get slapped and you, and, and the way it was done and everything like that. So there was, they were instilling fear. Like if you don't follow certain rules and I, I didn't realize that had left such an impression on me, but of course it did, especially because that was my first experience of going through that. And my family was not in a position to even confront that. Like if this happens in the school here, you can go and talk to the teacher or the mm -hmm. principal. You can't, if you're not, if you're a non-Bathist and you're in a, you know, it, it doesn't work that way because you're putting your family in greater fear. But my family, as they were watching this and holding their breath, they were knowing that we need to get out of here. Um, and my my dad, especially because um, my dad had, my, my parents had uh, seven girls and four boys. Mm. And he knew that even especially for the girls that for him, he wanted us to come here and he wanted us to be Americanized. Um, and you know, this is another thing about the novel, Pomegranate, is this young woman that comes here and she lives with a family that wants to, her mom wants to hold on to traditions, which traditions are a beautiful thing mm -hmm. to hold on to, but sometimes they can also hold us back. And there are some things from that region that we should just leave over there. Um, and especially if the person wants to acclimate and become Americanized, because this country has a lot of things that it does have to offer. And um, my dad, you know, like this is surprising because my mom was more like the old fashioned way. And most people, when they tell them that my dad, he, he was very progressive and he wanted us to blend in and said, well, this is why we came here for so that we can have these experiences. And this is one of the things that my main character struggles with. She sees all this opportunities available to her. And it's like that fine line is how, what do I cross that would, uh, how am I going to lose my identity? How far can I, become an individual, you know, without losing who, who I really am. Um, and uh, she is, she loves poetry and she is inspired by Enhedwana. Now, the other thing is certain characters historically are also, you know, like where we came from, nothing was taught prior to 1400 years ago. And so a lot of people that come from those regions and are now have the opportunity, well, now they have the opportunity with the internet but back then we were very limited on what we could study. And so when you get to discover a character like that, a historical character, and you realize that, oh my goodness, this woman comes from my region and she was powerful. She was a priestess, she was a princess, she was a poet. And so the character has this kind of inspiration that um, from a female character that she didn't really learn about before. And that kind of leads her into trying to find her own voice in her own ways. I love that. Now, so what part did you, I know it had to be hard to get when you're coming in as a child, the traditions that you had in your family, keeping those alive and trying to stay true to who you were to becoming Americanized, as you said, in the Western tradition. 
how did you create a balance? How did your parents go about creating that balance for you? Um, well, I don't know that they tried to, you know, uh, the, you know, my, my dad, I remember one time I, one of my very dear friends who, uh, her family like took me under their wings and, um, they were like, her name is Diane and they would like invite me over their house and take me to the movies and to church and just show me around. Um, and one day she asked me, um, if I would sleep over <laughs> and I, I came home and I told my parents and then all I saw was this argument between my dad and my mom and my dad was actually he's like let her go like we know you know we know this girl and she's like but no but you know they're they're Americans and he's like of course they're Americans we live in America <laughs> and then and she said um I don't know like she was so afraid um you know like the, my mom I mean imagine this woman this was I'm like telling you this is in the 1980s mm -hmm. and um here's my dad encouraging me so my dad got his way and that giving me that permission i, I again i realized like decades later was his I, I underestimated the power of that for me it was just like oh great i'm going to diane's house where nobody's gonna watch us eat all this junk food and we can like mm -hmm. their house is like you can eat potato chips on their bed so for me as a child, that was my main thing. But as an adult, I looked back and I said, oh, that's why I ended up traveling alone. Because when my friends didn't want to come and I wanted to see the world, I'm like, well, okay, I'll just go. And it was that that permission that initiated as a young child. Um, and my mom was more like the stable one. And, and I learned a lot from her as, as a housewife and as a mother. And I'll tell you, it was through this kind of example, through action. My parents never really like sat me down to talk about anything. A lot of it I had to figure out and I would have liked to have more of an opportunity of that kind of conversation. Um, so a lot of the things that I learned from them, it had to happen through a long time and by reflecting and by being a writer. Mm. Now, if I wasn't a writer, I don't know if I would have you know, like this is what trauma does. If you don't sit there and try to, to look at this and, and understand it, that's what could drive you crazy. So I think if they would have been more communicative about it, but their actions were very, very powerful. Like his action at, for me at 10 year old, telling me you can go sleep over. I do want you to be Americanized and that's an okay thing. Gave me that kind of power. And my mom being so stable at home gave me that also like okay i can travel but just stay grounded don't like think you know just because something is somewhere else that it's better off you know mm -hmm. like the grass is not always greener on the other side <laughs> yeah i love that because i mean they did it so unintentionally that you didn't realize that the intentions they were doing until later on in life you know ne they never made a distinction that you're any different from anybody else correct yeah yeah they didn't right they just kind of like they never sent me down to talk about it they never talked about our ethnicity they never said even in iraq i did not know i knew i was a christian and that stood out and that was mostly because uh on fridays when they did prayers i was allowed not to participate and so i knew i was a christian but it was it wasn't something like well you know we're christian and they're muslim and they're no my best friend was a muslim across the street and the, her mom like you know just embrace me like her daughter and so we didn't discuss these things and so that wasn't what was implanted so a lot of the things that i did see it was through experience mm -hmm. um so i would experience the discrimination and the prejudice but you know i was like okay but i have permission to do what i want to do and so i didn't let it hold me back 
Um, and yeah, I do give them credit for, for that. I love that. And do you think that you model some of the characters in your books around your parents as well? Yes, I think the mom, <laughs> I think the main character has so many of my um, description and that's the thing, even though she's Muslim, but you know, she's a character who's trying to uh, let go or, or she's considering whether she wants to remove the hijab or not. And um, so that's a materialistic thing. Now for me or any woman, regardless of her background, we all have had that materialistic thing that we wanted to whether to decide as we were going into uh, growing into womanhood, you know, what kind of, what parts of us do we want to give? And, and I'm, when I say materialistic, I mean, materialism comes in so many different aspects, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it's always in a, in a physical aspect, whether it's our clothes, whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our, us traveling to another place and saying, okay, you know what, I'm not restricted to just living and, and obeying my parents. Um, so, so, she, so the main character has a lot of that, um, and and then the, the mom, what her mom and my mom was like that too, is just kind of always being overprotective, but being so loving that at the end of the day, figuring while well, you know going along with it, but trying making all the attempts that she can to kind of stop anything from happening, <laughs> like keeping keeping you under control somehow, you know. So. So were you, you probably didn't recognize it, but were your parents kind of on high alert when, as when you guys were traveling as well, scared something was going to happen to you guys? Yeah, my mom was very scared and it came, she lost her firstborn. Um, he was very young. Uh, he was like a toddler. And so she became really overly protective. Um, and you know, she had a hard time. Yeah. If she didn't see, so here's me wanting to travel and here's her having such a hard time because her son, her first son, you know, she, he passed away after she had gone and visited her village. We were born in Baghdad, but her and my dad were born in um, the village of Turkiyev, which unfortunately was one of the ones that were attacked by ISIS in 2014. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer what it was before. Uh, but th that was their village, and it was uh, primarily a Christian village. Um, so she had visited her parents, and afterwards her son got sick, and they didn't have, they weren't advanced at that time. It was something that, um, I forgot what it was, but it was like something that would be curable t today. Mm -hmm. But that put, that implanted like that fear, and she was very young. They got married very young. Like she was a teenager. Um, so that implanted that kind of fear. And so, you know, she she wasn't into the education, and she wasn't, she's everything opposite of me. And, um, and you know, this is the thing, like you said, your, your husband is from Mexico and a lot of uh, communities that are indigenous, you know, we don't, we get past so much of that because our lineage is so, mm -hmm. it's not about the intellect. So our lineage is so old and uh, it might start off like me feeling, well, I'm, you know, I, I've studied and I've graduate graduated and I keep going to school and I've traveled and here she is she seems like but she was incredibly wise and um, this is something that I have found in indigenous people a lot and in, in going to Mexico and um, <clears throat> where I have met with indigenous and ancient um, communities <clears throat> which by the way the last time we went to Cancun what I really enjoyed there was an opportunity for the for people to um, have ceremonies with shamans. 
Mm. And I thought, oh my goodness, like the shamans have come out. <laughs> you know, like prior, it's, and to me that was, that was really, there was several ceremonies that were very healthy. One that I was able to enjoy with my family and one that I went on my own. And both were extremely um, like memorable and stayed in my heart and always will. But it was, it's these kind of teachings that never leave you. And that's what my mom has had. Yeah. Wow, I just can't even imagine. So have you, you've mentioned you have kids. Have you told your kids about your experiences, about growing up in Iraq and then having to leave? Have you kind of shared with them? Or are you kind of letting them make up their own mind about things? Um, yeah, I see, you know, sometimes I think about my mom a lot because I remember how she used to try to tell me things and I wasn't, I, I wasn't a good listener when I was younger. Um, and I think now when I, I am trying to tell my kids and I see that they're all, they're in their own world. So I try to plant it here and there. And then I, you know, I know that one day when I'm gone that they'll have, um, one of the things about writing the books is I, I really care to our community while it is um, not technically in, um, I mean, really it does, it is also facing extinction to a certain degree, but when you, when you count the numbers, it doesn't fall into a certain category, but given what has happened and everything like that, so it has dwindled a lot and uh, our community speak the Aramaic language until today, but you know, in my job, like today, I went and interviewed, we're doing what's called a digital storytelling project, where we interview the elderly who still speak Aramaic and tell us about their days and, you know, from the villages and things like that. And we do that because we're documenting the, you know, the language and their mm -hmm. heritage. Um, so I feel like I do that through my books as well, because one day when I am gone, I want to be able to have this documented somewhere because despite the richness of our community, of our history, we've gone through so much that a lot of our, um, our creative people are not able to utilize that creativity. So in my case, I became prolific, I believe, aside from loving writing, is that sense of responsibility. Like, well, we don't have that many writers in our community. We don't have that many filmmakers. And it becomes like part of me feeling like it's my job to make sure that I leave whatever I can for the next generation before I leave this earth. So how do you balance it all? Because you talk about you're doing this storytelling project, you're writing, you're doing films, you're and whatever, and you were executive director some at one of the places too. So how do you balance it? And plus the family, I mean, I'm tired just thinking about it. Yeah, you should see me when I'm like doing a meeting on like on the phone and I'm chopping onions. <laughs> very well by the way and then i'll have like the person on the phone they're like what are you cooking <laughs> like during the sizzling pot and i'll tell them oh it's <laughs> that's how i do it i mix my kitchen is my whether it's this is i have an office in, in, in my home which i've had it from the very beginning um i i would say i'm very disciplined and that does come from where i come from i mean you could not they, they were strict on you from first grade. You know, you had to you had to pass all your grades. Otherwise, you would fail. Like if you fail one subject, you you have to repeat the whole year. Um, and I think that's where I got the discipline from, aside from uh, my mom. Uh, but I, I do I don't categorize like my home and if I'm if I'm doing my work and taking care of my of my kids. And I do think that's also a tri tribal attribute. Um, 
we are very tribal. Like we are, are, we have extended family. My brother lives across the street. My other brother lives down the street. And my sisters lives on the other side of the down the street. Um, and so we're very tribal. And when you're, when you are as such, you kind of have to, we don't, for us, multitasking is not a negative thing. It's like, you got to take care of things. And it's, th these are urgent things. And so as long as you're taking care of the family while you're taking care of your work, um, you know, it's an okay thing. So I, I do believe that a part of that comes from that kind of background. Now, if, if you get to one day, if you're ever here, Melissa, you have to give me a call. Okay. I have to show you around. Okay. Our, our little community is called little Baghdad. And I think you would really appreciate it. But if you were to meet the community members and see their work schedule, they work as many hours as I do. Okay. However, they are in different fields. The, the biggest difference with me is I'm in a field that's really not that many people in my community have. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing similarly to them, working like seven days a week, but just in my other profession, you know? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll credit the multitasking part to it. <laughs> so how do you take time for yourself though, too? I do take time. Um, if I gotta tell you, so, um, Learning, I learned a lot from the women in um, Lindy Andrews um, Mystery School, and they were all very powerful women, um, much older than me. They were like my grandmothers that I didn't get to spend time with, the, my, my real grandmothers. So they served as that, and I learned a lot about energy work, and I think that um, about choreographing energy, which means that you know, you are able to utilize energy, not just through time, but really, um, the intensity of how you use your energy and the efficiency. So it's not about how much you do, but once you do things like that, you just produce more with less time. And I was in her school for four years. And up until like recently, because of the film project, um, I was mentoring her apprentices up until last month for the last like three years. So, um, and the reason I did that is in, in order to continue to be connected to the teachings, but it's um it's very ancient teachings that were passed down to her by various women, and for me, I see how women play such an important role and how much power and strength we have mm -hmm. if we just were to use um, our talents and skills, and also even most important, really, to help each other. I think combining all of those. Um, brings a lot of blessings and you get surprised on how things get done. Just, I don't want to say magically, but it does feel magically. It really yeah, does. I love that, how things get done magically. Because honestly, when you think about women and moms in general, kids think things are done magically, that mom doesn't do them. So I love the way you use that word magically because a lot of kids think, oh, the laundry magically gets done. The laundry magically gets put up. The dishes magically get washed. You know, when you're trying to balance everything, it's hard. So I'd love the fact that you use that. Yeah, it is. Uh, it feels like that for them. And then you realize, I mean, again, like I remember because my mom passed away not too long ago in 2019. Um, and it was especially after I, she passed away. I see for myself as a mom, when I have the house all done before my kids come and I and and the memories of her and me having that same experience I walk in and everything used to look perfect and it just I don't see any of the work behind it and I took mm -hmm. it for granted you know and um and that's what they do now to me 
<laughs> and they'll probably do it. And their kids will probably do it to them. So yeah, they like, they're not going to know. I can complain from now to like for, forever. And they're not going to get it until they experience it. Um, so, yeah, be, being a mom is, is one thing. And but you really appreciate the uh, the female aspect. And I, I think like with pomegranate and with Middle Eastern women, if, if anything, Arab women, um, yeah, there, there's an opportunity here for them that I, I think that I hope that they understand and appreciate and really utilize. Mm -hmm. I have to say that. I have to say that there's, there is something here that the women in this country and Western countries, they have gotten to a certain, and, and there's nothing wrong with learning from women who have gone ahead in certain areas. And, um, and that's, you know, that's something that I have experienced and I've learned a lot and I'm very appreciative for that. Wow. I love that. So tell people where they can find you at. Well, they can look up my website, which is basically my name. And my name is right there printed. Uh, we, I'm Nemo. Yep. Uh, and, uh, I also have a Facebook page and, um, if they're interested in the pomegranate, they can also check it out. Pomegranate movie. Uh, my book is available. At my, all my books are on Amazon. Uh, but if they're interested with regards to pomegranate is that they can actually, um, when they visit the website pomegranate movie is they will be able to see updates about us, you know, when we start shooting and all the other aspects that come to it and, and when it's going to be finally released. Do you think it's going to be released to movie theaters or released to like Netflix and Hulu or stuff like that? Because I've noticed a lot of people are going directly to streaming now. Yeah, I, I think it will probably be directly to streaming. Um, so it does have a, a, a certain niche. It might, might not be in that type of commercial. Um, uh, but although like we do have a good team, including, like I said, Scott Rosenthal, and he just really believes in the story. Um, so but you know wherever it gets distribution as long as it gets viewed um i, I think it's a very important it's going to be considered uh the first iraqi american feature film and to top it off it's led by women cast and crew i mean how cool is that right that is so cool <laughs> I, I i gotta say we really need to have this platform uh from our communities we don't really we don't complain uh, much and part of it is because of the culture that we can came from and we kind of don't you know we, we don't express we will allow a lot of the things just to go within us or more intimately share it with people um and so but we really do need that the kind of voice where we feel like we are represented as ourselves rather than people like trying to represent us but because we don't use our voice although like my peers and my colleagues, my wonderful friends try to say, well, you know, you got to do this more and you got to do that. But at the same time, we still have those um, characteristics that are Middle Easterners as women. And so we we have our own style of, of trying to get our voices mm -hmm. up. Um, and it helps us a lot. It would help our daughters too, to have that kind of um, opportunity, you know, to tell our stories because we don't want our daughters just to grow up seeing that the only version of themselves is the woman that is being abused. And the only version for our sons are the ones that are terrorists. You know, that this is how these stories like continue. And, and it leaves, these stories also leave certain type of traumas. Like we don't know the what it inflicts on them, but it does hurt us in many ways. Um, and I grew up being influenced by Western literature, which I think is beautiful. I think you should be influenced whatever is inspiring. But at the same time, if, for publishers and fil people mm -hmm. for the film industry, just this last message, 
for anywhere, when you say that you want diverse and uh, voices mm -hmm. and people of different ethnicity, you have to be authentic in the people that you choose and not just choose the ones that kind of write about what you choose that you want them to write about. Yes, and yeah. I was gonna ask you for a last nugget, but you just gave me that last nugget without asking for it. <laughs> That's the last thing, yes. Just, you know, let, let real authentic people tell their stories. I love that. Well, we am, I wanna thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And I cannot wait to watch the movie when it comes out. Do you have any ideas when it will come out? Yeah, we're estimating based on when we're gonna shoot it and stuff that it's gonna be um, next year, early next year. 2022. Ooh, can't wait. Yes. So guys, I like I said, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Lame, um, and just keep doing what you're doing to raise people's awareness because I honestly, I learned a lot through talking with you and that's just as a mom and as women, you learn, we can learn from each other and empower each other regardless of our race, regardless of where, we're, where we were born or anything else. We just need to all band together to learn from each other. I want to thank you so much for having me and um, giving me this ample opportunity to share my story. Thank you so much. Yeah. So guys, we will see you on the next chat from the blog cabin. Bye. Chats from the blog cabin. Enjoying this episode? Leave a review now.